Okay. Ready? <clears throat> Hello. You are hearing Alpha Bunga Bunga, a place you can hear about the politics and anti-politics of many different places. I'm Alex Hochuli, and today we've got a lot of different places to talk about. You know, what, what, where things are going in the future, not that anyone's got any fucking idea what sort of And about four chams, no chams, but then those would be two chams, pops of chams. Because the start show, yeah. all recommendation. See, Everdyne, Learned, we are doing a roundup on the UK election. You might have heard that the Conservatives are trying to form a government, but we know that the absolute boy was the real winner. And he might even just keep on winning given recent events. Then we're on to an event that's taken on a proportion, maybe even outsized in relation to its own obvious horror, which is the Grenfell Tower fire in London. It feels right now more than just an accident, and maybe even more than just criminal negligence, and we're going to talk about the implications of that. Then we're across the Atlantic to talk Brazil, a place where urban struggles over housing and development are also very acute. It's also four years since the outbreak of the massive protests of June 2013 in Brazil, known by some as the Vinegar Revolt or even the Salad Revolt. And luckily we've got two guests to talk us through this. We've got Matthew Richmond, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Center of the Studies of the Metropolis at the University of Sao Paulo. He's an urban geographer uh, studying the conflicts here. And we've got Sam Cowie, who's a journalist in Sao Paulo and has regular gigs with Al Jazeera and The Guardian. He's also got a bi-weekly show on BBC Radio 5 Live on Sundays, Up All Night with Data Madabayo, where he discusses the latest news in Brazil with a touch of humour, if possible. And he's going to try to bring that out for us today, aren't you, Sam? <laughs> going to try my best, yeah. <laughs> okay, boys, say hi. Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. Where, where do you, are you available on social media if people wish to look you up? I am indeed. Uh, you can find me at Matty Ritchie. Matty, M-A-T-T-Y, Ritchie, R-I-C-H-Y. Sam, say hi. Hi, how's it going? Um, I'm also uh, free, willing, and available on social media, and you'll find me at uh, at Sam Cowie eighty four. Uh, and then we've got, of course, myself. Uh, I'm Alex at Alex double underscore seventeen eighty nine on Twitter. And George, say hi. Hi. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter as well, like everybody. I'm at Polwick. but we haven't got, we haven't got Phil. We haven't got Phil. What happened to so, Phil? Uh, yeah, he's in Russia, so he couldn't be bothered. He's not committed enough. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't get past like the FSB sort of internet filters mm. and, and surveillance, so we just decided to the cut internet him out. iron curtain. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what have you? What's been on your mind, George? What's been in your own mind this week? Um, yeah, so I've um, been reading. Uh, actually, <laughs> does somebody else want to go first? <laughs> Because I don't really have I don't really have anything to say. A bit like last week, I just don't have anything to say. Alright. Yeah, so sure, basically this week I've been mainly following the continuing political crisis in Brazil. Um, the famous analogy with uh, Brazil's political crisis is House of Cards. More recently, we've seen this descend into more like The Walking Dead. And then there's another very clever internauta uh, saying, has said, from there, it's gone into cannibal holocaust. So basically, I've just been keeping up with that. Then, of course, we had this terrible fire in London. Um, 
a good friend of mine actually lives in Shepherd's Bush, and that was how I, in fact, first out, first found out about the fire. He posted some pictures on social media. Um, all of my Brazilian friends, well, not every single one of them, but several Brazilian friends of mine this week have have been saying, you know, what's going on in your city? What's going on in London? Um, you know, it's looking more like Rio de Janeiro with something crazy happening every week. Of course, referring to the uh, to the terrorist attack. Uh, before the elections and now this terrible fire. So yeah, this uh, this week's podcast where we're going to be talking about, you know, the 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 most, you know, the, the, the key events that have happened in the UK and as well in Brazil. Um, it's 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 going to be it's going to be a good podcast and I'm uh, looking forward to uh, giving my uh, 50 centavos. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like a bit of an ongoing trope in Brazil, like Brazilian observers of what's going on in the US, what's going on in the UK and the rest of Europe kind of commenting like, oh hell, like we keep thinking that our politics are so chaotic, our society is so chaotic and you look at what's going on in the north and you think, fucking hell, they're a bit fucked too. <laughs> it's like the Brazilification of the whole world while Brazil continues its own particular descent into hell. So anyway, we're going to talk about that. The Gringos imitating the classic. Yeah. Matt, what's grinding your gears? Um, well, I suppose I've, I've, I've kind of been slowly coming down from the excitement of, of the election result um it was quite a quite a kind of unusual experience for me because I've never felt particularly invested in an election before I've you know I've, I've, I've had that kind of same feeling other people have of waking up the morning of a after a kind of uh surprising or kind of or, or shocking result and 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 feeling quite you know uh feeling strongly about it, but not particularly of kind of like feeling like I necessarily had any skin in the game. And that wasn't, that wasn't the case. Uh, was it a, a week and a half ago now? Um, and we all, you know, we've got this kind of sad little club of, of, of people who in Sao Paulo who have a, an interest in British politics. And we watched the result together and it really felt like I was watching a football match. And that was, you know, I was, I was, I was really quite kind of, you know, euphoric, it's a great little club. Few. It's not a sad little club. It's a great <laughs> little club. I mean, I mean, little, you know, was 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 the was the key word there rather than rather than the sad part. Um, and probably better than like a football game because you know that it's actually like your team won rather than Arsenal, where it's a little bit <laughs> well up know, and down. Yeah, there you go. You know, it's 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 a it's a shocking situation when British politics is better than. Better than Arsenal, you know. Yeah, well, as a, as a Tottenham fan, you know, I can I can feel your pain, but I just don't sympathise that much. I'm afraid. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I definitely think as a as an Arsenal fan, there might have been some uh, something familiar about finishing second and presenting it as victory. <laughs> well, this is kind of what I was going to get onto, which is you know um, the fact that uh, you know I think we all feel felt like it was a, like those of us of a, of a leftist bent uh, probably felt it was a it was a victory. And then I suppose a few days later, after kind of you know coming down off of that kind of almost like you know adversarial kind of uh, um, I suppose like interpretation of the result, and trying to think about you know how does this become something that's actually sustainable that doesn't become just another kind of swing that then kind of slowly loses its energy, and thinking you know there really is a, a very uphill struggle you know over the coming months and years to try and help you know make this in become embedded into into something that actually has a real kind of impact on on politics and society in the longer term and you know thinking of that in the context of, of the wider kind of I suppose geopolitical situation with with the EU seemingly kind of re uh, re-embedding itself around the, the kind of the, the Macron Merkel axis and and you know all of the 
difficulties that a Corbyn government, if it even happens, would face. Um, and thinking, you know, that it really is a time for thinking beyond this kind of uh, maybe narrow kind of political game of accepting, of accepting, uh, you know, a, a, the electoral kind of measure of success. Um, and I don't really have any solutions to that, just, just something to start thinking about at this point, I think. Well, that's a good point to, to move on. I mean, unless George has <clears throat> thought of something interesting to say. Um, okay, let's move on to the meteor stuff. Uh, UK election. I kind of tempted just to go <clears throat> UK election discuss, but I think to try to narrow it down a little bit, let's look at it a little bit more sociologically. I think the most stark sort of realization about this election has been the generational question. Amongst most demographics, age is the best predictor of voting patterns now. 47 is the age at which the crossover happens. This is according to YouGov's um, very large 50,000 people sample uh, post-election survey. So for every 10 years younger a person is, the likelihood they vote Labour increases 9%. And the opposite is true as well, obviously. For every 10 years older a person is over 47, the likelihood of voting Conservative increases 9%. Uh, you can see this played out in occupational patterns as well, so that, for example, the only section of the population broken down by occupation which votes overwhelmingly Conservative is re the retired. And because the retired vote a lot, they push the Conservatives over the edge. Um, this is pretty remarkable and a, a pretty strong deviation from post-war British history where class was the most important marker of voting uh, intentions. So, and actual votes, not just voting intentions. So, what do we think of that, George? I think this is one of the, the things that, that made me quite, um, that, that took away some of the, 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 the euphoria after the election result which I was you know I was very happy about because Corbyn did a lot better than anybody was expecting and this is it seems now that Labour Party is not a working class party it's uh it's I think it's I, well, I don't know whether it's done this consciously or not under Corbyn but the it very much seems that the primary its primary appeal is to is, is almost a moral one um rather than a class one and if you look at the Manifesto the, for the many, not for the few. Not a, not a not class-based slogan, and I think this is this is this could potentially present real problems further down the road for the Labour Party because you can't see um, a massive electoral majority without without the working class behind Labour, um, which doesn't seem to be at the moment. Um, and maybe we can discuss why that is through through New Labour and through the, the kind of the, the realignment of politics in. In Britain, but I think the sociological dimension is a uh, is is quite an important one to consider um, when thinking about what this election means, because it does seem like there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more politics to go now, and people are actually interested in it now. So, yeah, I'm, yeah I think so it's a good starting point. I wonder whether the age question is the continuation of a longer term tendency, and I will come onto class, I think, in a second as well. <laughs> but it applies equally there that the Labour vote becomes increasingly middle-class and metropolitan over the course of the past 20 years, and whether the Corbyn election is a, a continuation of that, but that maybe, as Corbyn perhaps becomes more popular uh, and his policies get a wider airing, that there'll be, there'll be a sort of tangential change and that he'll start picking up Labour's voters in the North and the working class, which they previously lost. I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a question. I don't know. 
I, I'm not sure I entirely agree with I mean, I've seen some other, um, I don't have them to hand, but I've seen other statistics that suggest that people working, working people defined as just being employed overwhelmingly voted for Labour. And this was kind of, this covered across different kind of, um, maybe, maybe the, the, in terms of occupation, what we would traditionally associate with occupations. I mean, this, it comes down to class, you know, how we define class, right? And the Marxist sense of being a, of, um, you know, having to sell your labor, uh, to, to survive, these are you know all work, all working class people. We're using a kind of uh, a Weberian or Goldthorpe kind of scale of depending on people's kind of um, uh, um, kind of the skill requirements and qualifications and their level of autonomy of work and maybe even other things like their kind of uh, you know whether they own their own home and those kind of things. Perhaps labour is starting to skew more in a middle class direction, but. You could probably say that has as much to do with the kind of downgrading of, of working conditions in general. I mean, yeah. the uh, uh, occupations traditionally considered to be middle class really, you know, often don't deserve that that kind of uh, that designation anymore. So, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, this is the thing. I think that you could argue. I guess the argument against the idea that the labour vote has become increasingly middle class is that that middle class <clears throat> jobs have become increasingly proletarianized, or even rather precaritized and that that dynamic has led the situation where especially young people feel like they're kind of downwardly mobile in a way that they did previously uh so i don't know there's, there's a confusion as well which i think comes from the fact that there's been a kind of obviously a a a, a steady expansion over not just you know kind of in actually in fact probably stalled slightly in recent years i'm not sure about that but over kind of you know 50 years in access to higher education so you can have the you can appear to be a kind of because I suppose there's there's higher levels of cultural capital among younger generations. They can give the impression of being middle class even though their kind of economic capital is actually being kind of gradually gradually decimated. And so you can get that kind of dynamic where someone like Alan Sugar, who's a you know a, a CEO of or you know whatever it is he does these days, you know allowing his money to kind of his capital to kind of reproduce itself without doing very much, I suspect. But he can he can sell himself in, as being a kind of a working class lad done good, whereas someone who's kind of gone to university but you know is kind of renting, spending over fifty percent of their kind of uh, of their kind of you know crap income on you know on 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 living in a tiny flat would be considered middle class because they have the kind of outward uh, you know. They, they appear, like they're culturally middle the appearance class, like, of being middle class right yeah. yeah um which is very you know it's a generational kind of it's a it's a generational um i suppose almost a, a, a disguise of, of kind of underlying class dynamics to some extent um yeah so i guess um, maybe maybe to take the, the the age age point on that you that you raised um previously and we, we discussed this a little bit um last last time or maybe the time before but yeah it does seem like there's a there's definitely a really strong narrative that age division in british politics is is, is what matters that there's this kind of intergenerational um divide over brexit um with young people overwhelmingly seeing themselves as more cosmopolitan and that's the reason that they voted uh, to remain in, in the eu and sort of more i guess more more connected to the, to the wider world and 
as a consequence, seeing older people as, um, I guess, more insular and selfish and just thinking about themselves. And I think this is, you know, there are loads and loads of problems with this, but it does this is, seem this is the sort of millennials to have been, uh, narrative yeah. about you can't afford a house because you buy too many avocados. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this is the young people's um, uh, version of that. So it's seen from the other side, which is, oh, you, you old people, you've got your, you've got your assets, you've got your property, and now you're just voting in your own self-interest, and you, you know you're not thinking of our futures, you know the glorious future of remaining in the in the EU or whatever it would have been. Um, but yeah, so I think it's um, I think it's been replicated in in, in party politics, or it, it really seems seems to have been, which. Obviously, there's there's two kind of big implications of that, or two big questions. One is, um, is this just a temporary kind of um, change? Is this is this due to Corbyn and all of the the support that he's rallied around him, um, in various cultural, in various cultural actors, partly? And if it's not, then is this is it is it going to be an, an age, is there going to be an age effect where people get more right wing as they get older, or is this a, a, a cohort? Um, of people who will continue to stay left-wing because if that is the case then it seems like as time goes on you would have conditions which are much more favorable to left-wing government in the UK. Yeah I mean if, if the, the sort of more materialist account of this which suggests that it's the precarization of the middle, middle class that's going to remain the case and you'd expect as you said that this sort of going that it to be a cohort rather than a the question of age. Yeah, I think so. One of the um, you've, you have this this phrase, which is variously attributed to Churchill and Israeli, that if you're not a liberal when you're 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, I think it is, you have no no brain. Um, but yeah, I think that 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 doesn't seem really sort of plausible anymore if you're not because of these massive changes. Bengal in your 60s, then you know you're not worth anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're not continuously drunk for the last 50 years of your life. <laughs> And you have no banter, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I kind of lost my point a little bit there because I even had one. Um, regarding the age question, regarding the class questions, um, I think there's another factor of this as well, which is connected, uh, which is also geography. And we saw that, you know, um, we saw, you know, more people in the north voting Tory than perhaps than we've seen before, and then more people voting Labour in the south than perhaps that we've seen before. So, going back to this question with class, I mean, there is this uh, there is this question which I think is interesting: um, Is the Labour Party becoming more like the Democrat Party in the United States? Are we seeing, you know, in the north of England, in places, um, you know, like Tyneside in the northeast, particularly where we've seen such, you know, mass unemployment and people's, you know people's, you know, life conditions, you know, take, taking a turn for the worse for many years now. And these are the people, these are the people that often feel that voted UKIP and now they've, now they've voted Tory because they feel that Labour betrayed them. I think the real question for Corbyn now is how is he going to get these voters back on side? I mean, and does a man like Corbyn really appeal to these voters? So I think that's the really the great challenge for now is, you know, the class, the age, but also the geography, which is connected with the former two that's issues. That's a good point, because I think the betrayal point uh, is really important. People have longer memories, I think, than, it is often, uh, than people are given credit for. And that might, to a certain extent, explain the age divide. People over 40s might remember Labour's betrayal, <coughs> remember maybe the bad years of the late of the 70s and the 80s, and felt like Labour wasn't a credible party. Uh, for rightly or wrongly, the, the economic crisis happened under Labour's watch, and Labour took the flak for that. 
So there might be, that might explain to some extent that sort of age division, that generational gap that you have in the UK. There's another thing. The reason that Corbyn has had some relative success is because of the question of trust. Broadly speaking, the reason people voted Labour were because of questions of trust and of seeming good in some sense. And there's various different formulations they have uh, for this in the studies. But broadly speaking, it's that. They seem like good guys that you can trust. Whereas the reasons people voted for the Tories was, number one, Brexit, but also questions of leadership and personal fortitude. Now, of course, you can see what's happened now uh, in the lead up to the election and subsequent to it that May has just completely fallen apart. People have seen that she's just a shit politician. <clears throat> Um, and that all the things that she had banked on, her own personal image of seeming a strong leader, a sort of Margaret Thatcher, Mark II, has just completely fallen apart, and as a consequence, support for the Tories has fallen off as well. I, I wonder, though, whether that's really sustainable or whether Labour can really build on that capital of trust, because that, as we know, can be very ephemeral, right? Corbyn seems yeah, like a nice I guy. Think you'd like let him look after your children. But beyond that, you know, is there any substance to that? Well, that's always been Corbyn's greatest challenge, hasn't it? It's always been, he's seen as this, like this really great guy with great principles that you could really trust. And, you know, you'd like to go out with a drink with or something, but it's always been this, you know, unfair, perhaps some would say, uh, question that, you know, oh, but he's not a leader. All, all I would say on this question of kind of authenticity is that he, I think that because, because the, the, the um, I suppose the reputations of both Corbyn and May were established through a kind of media filter that didn't very accurately portray either of them. There was almost this kind of it created this kind of dynamic where May was May was set up to fail and Corbyn was set up to succeed. And I think that um, actually Corbyn was always a much better politician and had much more much more appeal than he was given credit for, and, and exactly the opposite for May. And she was actually probably probably harmed by that because, you know, she's almost like a kind of, you know, a, a wild animal who's kind of raised as a pet and then sent out into the wild. She wasn't prepared for, you know, for, for, for what that election campaign was going to require of her. Um, and Corbyn has been kind of, you know, he's been campaigning his whole life. And, you know, the but then there is this question of what, how that potentially translates into kind of into into government and you know that's that's a big yeah question. and i think this is a good segue here because whether corbyn is actually able to provide some leadership or whether he's merely a sort of empty vessel for people's hopes aspirations angers frustrations is a real sort of open question that we're going to see over what? the next coming months what's really sharpened yeah. uh, this week was the grenfell tower fire uh, this, for those who aren't familiar, it was a residential tower block housing 600 people, which caught fire on Tuesday night in West London. The inferno then consumed the whole building. Shortly after it emerged that new cladding was responsible for spreading the fire, and that despite a recent upgrade to the building, many fire precautions hadn't been followed, such as the sprinklers not being installed, they're not being fired, well-lit fire escapes, and so on. So this turned what was perhaps maybe an ordinary fire into something which was a complete tragedy. Um, right now, I think we've got something like 58 missing and presumed dead. Um, but given the tower housed about 600 people, one assumes the number is going to climb higher. And there's been reports from local residents who insist that it must be much higher. And there's been accusations that even the full scale of the tragedy has been concealed. But there's something broader at a sort of symbolic level, uh, which I think is really important, which I really want to discuss, which it seems to have caught a broader mood and has seemed to 
turned into a vehicle for anger in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been possible in the past. I want to discuss this. I want to unpick it. Um, really, this tower fire has come to symbolize much that is wrong about the UK, and not just in a broad moralizing sense that it's the working class, the majority of the population being treated like crap by the political class, but specifically because it takes place in housing, and housing is such a sharp, important sort of wedge issue in the UK, uh, a division between landlords and the rest, um, the absolute shortfall in housing, the declining housing stock, the fact that Britons live in some of the smallest houses in Europe uh, now per square meter. Um, so I think it's quite an important event and literally hour by hour that has passed in the past five days since the tragedy happened, it seems to gain a greater and greater importance in a symbolic level. George, do you want an initial comment on this? Yeah, I've got two two sort of initial points, really. I think the first the first thing is it's important to, to just make the, the simple point that this is what class struggle looks like. It is political. Um, and this is, you know, this is why calls to not politicise the tragedy um, in the immediate aftermath were misguided. And it's different, I think, from the terrorist attacks, which we talked about previously, which were sort of nihilistic and um, not strategic and not political in any way. This is... It, it is also symbolic that it is, as you said, Alex, that it's about about housing. And there's, you know, I think a really telling bit of common sense is that an Englishman's home is his castle. That you know, there's such a strong connection between home ownership, where you live, and your social status in in one of the most class divided societies and status sort of senses in the world. And this is, you know, this is this is what it. What it looks like um, when you know this is this is the the exact op opposite or, or reverse or consequence of of some of the um, extremely luxurious housing in London, um, which I'm a resident of, and it's just in, insane how much you you have to pay here. Um, and the second thing, which is a kind of another sort of, sort of basic point, I think, is that calls to like focusing on Theresa May's behaviour in the aftermath. I think also was a little bit misguided there was a lot of calls to basically that she should be emoting or that she should be sort of showing emotion and i think that's i, I think that is a distraction from this is a political issue and it's you know her personality really in some senses is neither here nor there um it's it's the, it's the policies of successive labor and conservative governments which have created a situation where this can happen so those are my that's that, that's my sort of starting point but um yeah yeah, no, I think, I'll pass it over. I think to an extent that despite the fact that politics seem to be changing UK, it's a legacy of the past 20 years that politics has been reduced to politicians, that the politicization of this event has to a certain extent focused too much on the person of May, which I agree with you, George, that it seems to be a distraction from the wider political issues, which, which it should be mentioned, are not even um, party political in the sense that there's a cross-party consensus between Tory and Labour in terms of not really building houses, not investing in houses, not building social housing or housing full stop. Um, so I think there's, I think it's absolutely right that this should be politicized. It is inherently political, but what we mean by that, I think, still needs to be clarified and uh, one needs to divide up one interpretation of what is political and, and the other one which isn't. I, interesting, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, yesterday there were protests against this, which seemed pr to be pretty spontaneous. Uh, people ended up chasing Theresa May down the street shouting coward, uh, and there's been a lot of anger. And for all that I've said that Theresa May perhaps shouldn't be 
personalized as the embodiment of the you know responsibility for this tragedy that is much broader than that there is a sense that Theresa May is a fucking coward and and didn't debate in the election and now runs away from any confrontation and with rightly or wrongly I think this has captured a moment and that uh something's really changing in the UK this is different yeah definitely so I think the feeling in the um that yeah that these these spontaneous um protests people occupying um kensington town hall people being extremely angry um and obviously rightly so and it did you know i think the people people on twitter are obviously prone to exaggeration and um, um saying that this you know this this could lead to a riot and you can see why because the the you know the, the coverage as it unfolded made made it so clear that there was an unbelievable level of anger over this event, which um, had clearly had been predicted um, and was all the more tragic for that for that reason. Yeah, that's that's right. And I think I've seen I mean, this is even just within my own kind of social media circle, but people from different political inclinations have kind of been forget, uh, predicting a hot summer in the UK, that things are really going to kick off. Um, and, I, and we've kind of seen predictions of this in the past, you know, when there was the, the riots in summer of 2010, 11, 2011, sorry, um, that I was almost surprised that they never happened again, given the situation. It was almost odd. I was expecting that if the conditions were there for a riot, that those would persist uh, absent any changes. And there weren't any changes. Things kind of got worse, uh, whether, it, whether you want to describe that in terms of material conditions or social atomization or whatever else it might be. I think in any case, it does seem to be a bit of a maybe to, to our surprise a little bit, a bit of a, a bit of kettle ready to boil over. Well, yeah, I mean, I think absolutely, I totally agree with you. Um, I would say, yeah, that I think we are heading very potentially for a hot summer in the UK. Um, regarding the riots of 2011, I would say that in 2011, the UK was not quite a, as nowhere near, in fact, as a politically charged place as it is right now. Um, also, we have to remember that the, the Tory government at the time you know, there was a real clampdown on the protesters, wasn't there? We saw like, you know, young kids, essentially, you know, young working class kids who didn't have jobs basically was what the majority of the rioters were. Because you know what, if you're doing your accounting exam to become a chartered accountant the next day, you're not going out to throw riots. You're not going out to throw bricks and, you know, to riot in the streets. Oh, you know, if you've got nothing to lose, um, then, you know, you're more likely to act up, right? And we saw some very harsh sentences, didn't we? You know, there was the, the case of the young boy from Hackney who stole like a bottle of mineral water while one of the, when one of the shop was when one of the shops was rushed. He was caught on CCTV. Um, he got some, he got like a six, six months to a year uh, custodial sentence for that. So, you know, a very harsh clampdown on the protesters um, that I think would have had an effect on deterring um, deterring any further protests. And also, let's not forget that the process in London started when the police in London executed a, uh, a young black man. And there was, all, there, was, there, was a, there was a kind of racial element to these protests as well. Um, but mainly that, but, because they started in communities which are like, you know, Hackney, Tottenham. It started in Tottenham, of course. Um, you know, it started on Broadwater Farm, where we saw the riots in 1985, uh, you know, after uh, the police entered a, uh, they entered a, 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 the house of a young man and his mother had a heart attack, you know, with, they entered without a search warrant. I think 
the the I think I think a big part of what the fact that we didn't see um, further riots in the UK in 2011, one because of the harsh sentences and the harsh cracking down, two there was this overtly inner city racial kind of element to it that you know that 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 certainly it began with that and like spilled over to other things. Uh, right. Whilst now, that, right, I think the, the, the please, interesting Karen. thing is that this. Feels different this is different, exactly. That the riots in 2011 didn't have any broader sympathy. They weren't treated no. as protests. They weren't political in the sense of making any claims. Now this event seems to have absolutely found a political and class channel to express its anger, partly because of Corbyn. I mean, partly because of the relative success that Corbyn has had in this election. Maybe people feel like they have a legitimacy to express their frustrations. Just as a my personal observation on this was that if this had happened five years ago, if the same fire had happened five years ago, there would have been benefit concerts, there would have, it would have been treated in a through a much more humanitarian language of these poor people yeah. that this has happened to and what a sad <laughs> thing, let's call in the health and let's have more health and safety or something like that. And it would have stopped there and now there seems to be this anger and a political channel for it that wasn't there previously. I think I think maybe yeah. there's there's, a, there's an aspect as well that um, I think there was a tendency in the, you know, in the kind of in the liberal left media response to the riots to treat it as a kind of, you know, on the right that there was a kind of there was a kind of moral panic and it was about kind of, you know, this, you know, forget the term Cameron used, but something about kind of a sick society, you know, broken Britain kind of narrative, and in the liberal left there was a kind of condescending kind of sociologization of it you know mm -hmm. these are people who kind of like don't have any kind of political motives don't have any ideas they're these kind of you know these kind of you know beasts who are just kind of going out and kind of expressing some kind of rage that they don't understand you know rather than saying oh actually maybe there's something maybe actually there is something about you know the way that these neighbors are policed and maybe there is a kind of political content to it and you get a very different kind of uh treatment of something like Occupy or the student movement which yeah. would be to say this is a political struggle, but for people who don't have there's no sociology behind it. There's no there's no fact that you know these are actually kind of you know students who's um, who's got you know or, or kind of you know people as we were talking about before with you know high cultural capital, but who's essentially whose futures are being kind of slowly kind of uh, dismantled before their eyes. So actually, there's a sociology of those kind of what ostensibly are more kind of political forms of protest and there's a politics of what we tend to kind of put in the category of you know sociology you know um, mm -hmm. and I think that maybe what we've seen now is a bit of a kind of convergence of the two that now there's a kind of there's, there's maybe a, a, a something along the lines of a, of a I don't know a, a kind of a, a collective political subjectivity of these two groups that are seen as I don't know maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a bit overly uh, kind of optimistic here but of these two groups that have con traditionally been seen as kind of as different and I you know I think if you go back historically you could you could say the same thing about you know the the the, the black riots in the 1960s in the US versus the kind of Vietnam War protests you know you'd get the same kind of dichotomy in the way that they'd be treated by left and right kind of uh, uh, commentators and I think maybe what we're seeing now is the fact that actually that perception of having completely different kind of um uh, you know, interests and completely different, these struggles being quite distinct and deserving different kinds of analysis that actually started to break down a bit. Um, and we might be getting something like the formation of a, of a, of a, of a, a collective subject that can't be as easily kind of uh, divided and ruled by these kind of different ways of, of, of 
of of categorizing forms of protest. Um, but maybe I'm maybe I'm being a little bit kind of uh, uh, over optimistic there. So I think just and, uh, I guess yeah, I think this 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 follows on a, a little bit from what we've we've been talking about already. But the one thing which was pretty striking was uh, Corbyn's suggestion that um, some luxury homes in Kensington um, get uh, requisitioned and provided as uh, accommodation for all the all the um, residents who've been made homeless by the fire. And I think that five years ago that would have been a laughable suggestion or it would have it would have been completely disregarded but i think there was a UG, there was a yougov poll that said that 60 percent of people support that um either either strongly or or, or moderately yeah, UK -wide, and i think actually right? sorry UK yeah uk-wide and i think that's i think that's quite that's quite surprising that it's it's been very yeah it's, it hasn't been um you know turned into a kind of a sociological problem of, of you know why are these people so angry what what can we do to you know to, to placate them it's more actually this is a you know this is linking directly the the poor quality of this of this housing to the to hundreds of empty luxury properties um in the, in the same city so i think that's in the same I think neighborhood that, Alex, yeah exactly, yeah in the same you know in the same area so it's really striking that this that the, the 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 possibilities of a political response seem really unimaginable. It would have seemed just. It's, it, I think Alex, you're basically you're right. Compare this to five years ago, and there's there's not a humanitarian, but there's a political response. Yeah, that's right. And it, I think the question of like requisitioning or compulsory purchase of homes. In lots of discussion about this has been like, well, no, this is something that does happen. It's happening, for example, with HS2, the high-speed rail network. And, you know, there's some complaints from NIMBYs about not wanting to give up their homes and so on. Um, and But that's treated in a relatively matter-of-fact way. Like, this is something that happens that the state sometimes does step in and do these things. And remarkably, it's almost being treated, this event is almost being treated like this. There's not been, as you say, it's not neither been outrage nor total um, total disregard for these calls. Like it's actually been treated as a, as a serious proposal. Well, there's outrage among, you know, kind of um, uh, neoliberal commentators who this kind of actually, you know, kind of is, it, 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 no, this is where they see it, it as offends the their fundamental, you know, kind of this is the absolute core of their, of their kind of belief system. So those people are very kind of shocked and appalled. But in terms of the, the resonance of their arguments, I think we're seeing that actually it's kind of, it's that kind of, that, 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 that kind of, uh, you know, that, that sacred um, kind of rule that they have that, you know, private property is, you know, is, is you know, is, is something that you absolutely can't kind of uh, yeah. tamper with, except obviously when you're, when you're pursuing a kind of boosterist kind of growth model and it's, it's kind of lower middle class people in the, in the suburbs whose houses are being um, requisitioned for HS2 or whatever, then it can be justified on some kind of wider utilitarian kind of um, agenda of national of national growth or, or you know, some kind of technocratic, but actually kind of challenging the right of the super rich to, to, to buy up and then use or not use however they want, um, you know, is the resonance of that argument is no longer uh, holding well, it's it's no longer having the residents that it that it would have a few years ago, and I think that's yeah. quite a quite a striking finding. And this is when I when I talk about how sustainable this is, I wonder, you know, like how easily how easy it is to put that back in the box. And I, I 
genuinely don't know. But this is something that this is this is the foundational proposition of of kind of um, the neoliberal capitalism yeah. in general. But, 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 but also the illusion that's made by conservative interests between personal property, your personal belongings, and property as capital. That which is completely fanciful, the idea that the home that you might live in is the same thing as owning 10 different homes which you rent out as a landlord or you know the, the capital that you hold or stocks yeah. and so on, that these things are the same same thing that belong in the same buckets. That no longer seems credible. As that poll that George cited attested to, you know, a majority of British people think that people should be rehoused in, in empty properties. Um, I think that's a remarkable change. George, unless you have any comments, I'm going to move on. No, let's 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 move on. Let's talk about let's talk about Brazil. Something hopefully a bit more uh, a bit more positive. Well, <laughs> yeah, a bit crazy. <laughs> so about Brazil, I think when I saw the Grenfell Tower fire news, my first thought was, was this deliberate? And that's maybe sounds like me being conspiratorial or overly cynical, but I think the experience of living in Brazil does make you aware of the fact that whole neighborhoods sometimes go up in flames and it's a deliberate arson to clear out an undesirable, in quotation marks, neighborhood to make way for new developments. It's good that we've actually got Matt on as a guest because this is the sort of stuff that he studies and be good to chat to him a little bit more specifically about what's going on in the urban situation in Brazil. Matt, do you want to tell us a little bit broadly about kind of your research? Sure. I mean, I think maybe maybe a bit of background would be would be useful for this, then um, can maybe uh, help your listeners to get a sense of, of where the where the comparisons with the kind of context in the UK and maybe other places they might know. And Brazil um, are valid and where they and where they end because there, there are some some very important differences. So Brazilian cities grew in a very different way to British cities. If you think about the, you know, the period of um, of, of the of the very rapid growth of growth of, of London and some of the industrial cities, it happened, uh, you know, in the maybe kind of mid to late Victorian periods. It happened in a context where there was kind of very rapid growth and um, and a, and a lot of kind of poverty, but people, but um, you know, people being crammed into kind of slum housing, um, paying proportionately high kind of rents on, on, on very poorly, you know, kind of kept properties. But this all occurred within the context of a kind of, of, a, of a, a fundamentally fun- functioning formal property market. So homes were always built by kind of formal um, uh, construction companies through with, you know, by people with kind of uh, titles to the land that was, you know, where it was being built, um, even if they, they they weren't necessarily good quality homes. Brazil, that 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 fundamentally didn't happen. So you know, when when Brazil's Brazilian cities grew to even you know some of them to even far larger than even the, the biggest cities in in Europe or or, or North America. Um, mainly beginning in the kind of 1940s and 1950s, peaking in around the 1950s and 60s, there was a process by which cities grew, um, but with a large part of that growth occurring in a kind of unregulated, informal way. Um, the most obvious example of that being favelas. These are areas which were uh, where where people who had no access to housing in the in the in the uh, private or, or social housing sectors 
occupied land adversely. They they went and occupied land that was owned by someone else um, or publicly owned land. They did not have land titles and they started to construct their own self-built homes on them um, in the absence of any other kind of, of access to housing. So that's the most typical case we know about. They, um, the kind of the, the idea of the favela is kind of a, you know, kind of uh, globally kind of known um, kind of concept. But then uh, there are other forms of kind of semi-formal um, areas, actually more typical in Sao Paulo, where we are now, um, which are places where uh, land was essentially subdivided by landowners, but without um, them fulfilling most of the kind of formal regulations required for the for the incorporation of new of new neighborhoods. So they failed to build infrastructure, or they failed to kind of fully regularize the the division of plots or to or to um uh hand over land titles in a formal way um and so people built their own homes in a slightly more organized and slightly more formal way than in the con context of favelas but still had this same kind of um essentially kind of self self-help kind of process of urbanization so so brazil has a fundamentally kind of different urban structure to somewhere like uh you know, Western Europe. Um, so if you think about, you, you can, you can intervene here. If yeah, I'm, if can I'm I talking too in, much. Can, God I, Sam, can I just sure. jump in with something? I just wanted to like a kind of give a kind of real succinct approach to what we're really seeing now in Sao Paulo. Um, and then we can get onto the fire subject. So what we are seeing now in Sao Paulo, especially now more than ever is we saw a period where Brazil grew, um, didn't grow that much realistically, but it, you know, it grew sustainably over a period of, you know, 10 years or so. What we've seen in Sao Paulo is during that time, rents soared, rents doubled, rents tripled, you know, depending on the place, um, depending on the neighborhood. During this time, we saw the beginning of, uh, you know, the, the first movements of people going really far to the periphery of the cities and setting up encampments made literally from, you know, like wood, tarpauling, um, you know, just literally building huts that they could live in in um, unoccupied plots of land. Now, this process has accelerated even further as Brazil has, you know, slipped into its greatest recession on record. And now we're seeing the new occupations uh, on the real periphery of the city, not even really Sao Paulo, in the greater Sao Paulo region, especially because even private rents on the periphery have literally become unaffordable for working people. And now um, with working people have been hit hardest by this recession that we're seeing, you know, traditional working people's jobs in Brazil, such as, you know, construction for men, um, you know, very often very informal, but construction for men and, you know, uh, maids work or cleaning for women. These have been some of the hardest hit industries. And now what we're seeing, especially in Sao Paulo right now, is a real increase in the number of people that are living in, you know, these occupations on the great periphery of the city where you might have like 300 people, you know, more than that, you know, we've seen some of the big ones we're seeing you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred people living in literally shacks that have been made from like wood, tarpaulin. You know, they they manage to uh, they, they they manage to some often you know hook up electricity. Sometimes they manage to break into the 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 water system as well and get plumbing. But it's very much these very precarious kind of uh, residences. You know, like made mainly out of wood and tarpaulin. And we're really seeing a growth in that now. And you know, these places, of course, by their nature 
are really, really vulnerable to fire. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, just to just to put those two points together, they're kind of giving some of the background to kind of urbanisation in Brazil and, and what Sam's talking about, these kind of new, very precarious um, kind of land invasions and occupations. If you imagine this process of a kind of peripheral kind of growth of the city, but you imagine that at every point in time, the periphery is expanding. So what you get is you'll get, you know, kind of informal neighbourhoods that at one point were at the very edge of the city, but now are actually kind of quite well Kind of located you know they're, they're kind of in the 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 kind of would be considered part of the kind of expanded center of the city so you do get these kind of intermixing of kind of favela or other forms of informal kind of settlement with um with more kind of well-connected up you know well-built middle-class kind of areas and then you get these kind of more um uh i suppose kind of opportunistic kind of um uh invasions and occupations of of um of central areas um you know uh vacant central areas by these kind of new new occupations um and uh these are of course areas now in the in the expanded center of the city that that i mean actually the the, the property market is, is is slightly depressed at the moment but during during the peak of the of the property boom between around 2008 and 2012 um these areas suddenly the land they were sitting on became hugely valuable and so this creates a kind of, you know, a perverse incentive to, to remove these areas. Um, and in Brazil, that, 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 um, that kind of process faces all kinds of legal complications because there are uh, actually quite strong squatters laws that protect people's rights if they're able to remain um, in place for uninterrupted for more than five years. They, they actually kind of, um, they are, they kind of, um, qualify for what's seen as a kind of uh it's called also capion it's a it's a it's a form of adverse occupation that's seen as kind of semi-legitimate um uh, in legal terms so you know getting rid of these areas is actually quite difficult so one way that you can potentially bypass these um that those kind of legal problems is by you know kind of literally destroying them um Actually, I mean, Alex, you, you you spoke about this being a kind of deliberate thing. Actually, in most cases, it's probably not. Yeah. In most but cases, always, but there's always suspicions that there are. I mean, right? This is the thing that I think in some cases there certainly are, and there and there are there are there are, there are um, kind of you know rumors we circulate about kind of uh, yeah. land developers and, and construction but, companies being involved with kind of you know like militia type actors who go and kind of like you know almost. It's, it, it, I mean, I, def I, I agree with you here, Matt. I mean, it's, it's, it definitely happens, but it, often it's kind of an easy explanation. The reality is often far much more, much more complicated and almost even more ugly. It's the fact that these neighbourhoods aren't served by, you know, the kind of services that we expect to receive as citizens. They're not served by police. They're not served by firefighters. They're not served by emergency services. Often they don't even have real addresses. You know, I visited a, uh, a community that was burnt down uh, recently. Uh, there were like 600 you know, lots there that were, it was all decimated. One of the main reasons it was that the, the, the fire brigade couldn't get there. They didn't know where it was. They said, yeah, we're in, we're in occupation Esperanza in Osasco. Okay. Where's that? We don't know. You know, there's not a real address. There's not, you know, there's, there's, there's not, you know, a point for these people to get to. And they, you know, 
in these poor communities where people are cooking with gas, um, literally, not figuratively, there, people cooking with gas, um, using you know uh, pressure cookers, this kind of thing, the the, the potential for accidents. The materials of the homes are often you know kind of, you know highly flammable. And, yeah. To take a little bit of a political backdrop to this, over the period of the Workers' Party government from 2002 to 2015, 2016, uh, there was a program, one of the PT's flagship programs was called Mia Casa Mia Vida, right? My House, My Home, yeah. my, sorry, my, my House, My Life. Um, that, was, that was one of the flagship programs for, of house building. And alongside that, you've also had the development of, of uh, sort of the landless workers uh, Homeless workers. The homeless workers movement, uh, which rather than try to occupy terrain, which then would become favelaized, it would, they actually try to occupy then for a political aim, yeah. the aim of encouraging the government or forcing the government to yeah. continue the house building program. Now that the worker, now since the parliamentary coup in Brazil, the workers party government's out of power, that has disappeared. So what's the sort of lay of the land with these things now? Well, I mean, like one of the one of the things, uh, one of the motivations for occupying land uh, in Brazil is that you know when there's what we call a reintegração de posse, which is basically mean when the police turn up with you know gas bombs and truncheons, basically to clear everybody out. There is, in some cases, um, the potential to get what is known as a social rent, because you know under the Brazilian constitution, you know the social right of property overrides the, the, the profit motive of property. But just like with many things in Brazil, um, which is, it's certainly not something that's unique to Brazil, but it's, uh, it's very particular to Brazil. The law, the, 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 the word of the law and the reality are often things that are very, very different. In reality, the judiciary in Brazil is, you know, almost exclusively, you know, white and from the, you know, from, from the upper classes. And usually uh, they, they side with the property owner. And then, of course, there's all of other factors we could consider as well, such as bribery, corruption. Most of these properties, whether they be buildings in the centre of the city or whether they be uh, what's known as tejanos, you know, plots of land on the, on the outskirts of the city, most of the owners in these cases are actually owing, you know, tens of thousands sometimes not more in uh, in unpaid back taxes to the uh, to the state governments often like i say i've kind of lost my point a little bit here just you know spewing information at our <laughs> listeners but um, often the one of the key motivations for people occupying these plots is that like you know in the event of them being turfed out, they can often gain uh, what is known as a social rent, where they can register for social rent, uh, which is basically where you're paid a certain stipend by the uh, by the local government, by the local municipality. Um, I believe it's the municipal government anyway. Maybe I, I doubt it's the state government. Uh, where you're paid by the local municipality, you know, a certain amount of money. Let's say like a hundred pounds a month, one hundred and fifty that you can uh, that you can spend on your rent, basically. So, I mean, just to maybe maybe draw a, a link between between the kind of uh, things we're talking about in in Sao Paulo or Brazil more generally, and and this recent um, uh, the, the fire in Grenfell, is to say that um, you know essentially, you know, it, it doesn't matter what started the fire. <laughs> um, what what it shows is a kind of structural failure to uh to actually stand up for the right of certain people to be in certain places um and what we've seen in you know in brazil historically 
Um, you know, there have been some attempts to try and fight, you know, this, for example, the, 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 the squatters' rights, some, some attempts to kind of strengthen or upgrade favelas over time. But, you know, kind of historically what we've seen is a kind of, uh, you know, a fundamental kind of lack of, uh, of support for, for low-income people to be in certain parts of the city. And we're seeing that kind of very clearly in London at the moment. Um, the, the fire is, I, I, is, is, is very symbolic of that. It's a very extreme case, of course, but what, what you're getting is an assault on all sides and actually, in, you know, kind of less spectacular, less visible ways. It's, you know, kind of, it's happening through, through cuts to housing benefits, it's happening through squeezes on, on wages, it's happening through cuts to local authorities, which end up being um, loaded onto kind of um, social housing renters or, or, um, or uh, um, housing benefit recipients in other ways, um, gradually being squeezed out of these areas. So I think that there, there is a, there is a very clear kind of parallel there. I wouldn't want to over, Alex, some people use the term of kind of, you know, that there's, there's a, a Brazilianization of, of, um, of cities in the global north. I, I think that can be a bit of an oversimplification, but I mean, in that, in that sense, I think that that, that is something that, that we're seeing and, and we need to think about what, what kind of, um, what kind of politics and what kind of policies it is that actually kind of uh, starts to say no. Actually, these people have a have a right to stay where they are. They are a, they're a part of the city, and and you know, imagining this kind of if you have the ideal of uh, you know if the the kind of which was the political kind of consensus until now um, of gradually dismantling the kind of welfare state protections that keep low income people in kind of um, you know. Uh, potentially valuable urban areas, um, you know, the, the the gradual downgrading of that of of that um, of those protections um, behind the kind of ideal of a, of a of a global city, and that you know, that's that that is um, that's kind of symbolised in this um, trying to kind of you know this this um, panelling or, or cladding that was put around the 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 front of the of the um, of of the Gren of Grenfell Tower, um, trying to kind of almost hide something that was seen as not fitting in as not as, as being out of place um, in the pursuit of the ideal of a, of, of a global city where, where, you know, kind of low income people fundamentally don't figure. How do we reimagine cities in a way that these people are actually seen as part of its future? Um, and that's a challenge in, in, in London as much as it is in, in Sao Paulo. Okay, so we were talking about the possibility that the UK might end up having a hot summer and that there's been some predictions about that in light of recent events and the Grenfell Tower fire. Um, let's flash back to Brazil because this will be a little bit of uh, a bit of a deep context on, on Brazil which I think is really important. Um, Brazil has in some sort of ironic way been commemorating four years since June 2013 which was Brazil's own hot winter if you want. Um, which is when you had an explosion of protests, which was quite inchoate, but which led to subsequent protests, which ended up with the uh, impeachment of Juma Rousseff and subsequent protests against the usurper, uh, Michel Temer. And without understanding what happened in June 2013, you can't understand Brazil today. And I think in a lot of the Western media, this is sort of glossed over, the impact of this, but it's a real decisive moment. Brazil's crisis is not just a political and economic crisis, but is a much longer term process, which has this real moment of interruption in, in Brazil's recent history, which was June 2013. 
to give a little bit of background before we discuss that, and Sam uh, and Matt, who were here at that time, will kind of give us a bit more of an eyewitness sort of account to kind of recall what it was like then. June 2013 it, it burst onto the scene really with um, the protest for uh, free transport in Sao Paulo primarily. But with after a heavy-handed police reaction, and this is a phenomenon we've seen across the world, we've seen it in Turkey as well, where a heavy-handed police repression explodes a protest into something which has a much greater symbolic weight than whatever the initial demands were. This was a heterogeneous and very mixed uh, protest which had, to the extent that it had clear demands, they were on the one hand democratic ones around essentially for greater welfare, for greater representation, and ones which are as well, on the other hand, anti-corruption. What we see in the subsequent period in Brazil, and we'll come back to this, but is a bifurcation of these demands. And so you have a greater polarization so that the left assumes these democratic demands and the right assumes an anti-corruption discourse. And that really <coughs> captures what the state of play is in Brazil today. Um, but let's let's go back to what it was like at, at the time, Sam. Yeah, let's, um, let's give a bit of context here. So um, June 2013 in Brazil... Um, on the surface, everything seemed fine. You know, you had the World Cup was coming next year. Everyone was looking forward to that on paper. Uh, the economy had slowed down, but it was still growing. You know, uh, unemployment was low. Inflation, you know, one of the great fears of Brazilians after the, after the hyperinflation period of the, of the 90s. Inflation was low. On paper, everything, everything seemed fine, but there really were these simmering tensions underneath the surface. As we talked about before with the, uh, with the property speculation in Sao Paulo, rents, etc., the price of rent was going up. Um, in Rio de Janeiro, the, 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 the governor, Sergio Cobral, who was, you know, real, really spearheaded, was the mastermind behind the kind of like the, 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 the World Cup project, certainly. Um, and his, you know, his protege, Mayor Eduardo Paes, who spearheaded the Olympics. Sergio Cabral had just been caught flying around in like a, in a public helicopter to, you know, to, to, to drop his kids off at school or like to drop them off at like some luxury resort or something. I can't remember quite the details. So it was this kind of situation where everything seemed fine on paper. Brick Brazil was still one of the bricks. Brazil was still, you know, doing well. But uh, but yeah, this 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 image, how however fragile it might have been, was really was really put uh, was really was really damaged by the 2013 protests, which uh, encompassed a whole range of issues. Basically, I mean, a large part of this was uh, calling for uh, better public services, which to this day is literally one of the only things that still unites the Brazilian left and the Brazilian right, if such concepts really exist. The, it's, it's, it's one of the few things, Brazil's very polarised place right now, and one of the few things that actually does unite people is the wish for better services. Well, which is, we don't believe the right really care right <laughs> right sure <laughs> yeah but like ironically what we're seeing now is this new government that we have in brazil is actually taking apart these services i had a a, a similar experience and i you know it took a while for me to work out that you know quite how contradictory the kind of demands were i think initially i kind of got caught up in the kind of um I don't know, in a certain romance of it, you know, there seemed to be this kind of collective rising of... of yeah, it was of, the Arab Spring at the time as well. It felt like something yeah. like that, yeah, um, of a kind of co collective rising of, of people kind of um, 
basically saying they didn't want to put up with any more kind of, you know, huge spending on on kind of vanity projects while, you know, kind of public services, transport, education, health, um, basically kind of failed to improve during this, you know, this this period of kind of massive growth. I think Um, this is an interesting point. And there's a sort of uh, a sort of... let's say, kind of crude leftist trope that when things get really bad, the people will rise up. And if you look at even just recent history and recent global protests, is that it's actually rising expectations yeah. and the confounding yeah. of those rising yeah. expectations, which really leads people to the streets. Yeah. And this is what you had in Brazil. You had 10 years of growth. And despite people's, uh, you know, in their, their lived experience of the time, being that they suddenly are able to afford a car or a refrigerator, etc., that public services didn't improve that's yeah. how the state still feel decrepit like the promised land of brazil had sort of arrived but not really and and that's what really burst onto the scene at that point yeah it was a very divided promised land because you did have for a lot of the uh, for a lot of kids for example that were part of these protests they were kids that were going to the university for the first time the first people in their families to go to university but they were crappy universities they weren't the you know the ustvis the university of sao paulo the oerges the the state university of rio de janeiro they weren't the the best universities they weren't the great universities the great universities of brazil they were kind of like you know in the main you know Still an achievement, but still, you know, like kind of like fairly crappy um, private universities who also became massive donators to the uh, to the to the to the Workers Party in Brazil. Um, And a lot of these kids, you know, you know, these going to these kind of universities isn't going to get you into the top echelons of, of the Brazilian job market rarely will um and so these were the kind of complaints that everyone was talking about yeah like you know people's lives had improved um but they hadn't quite improved enough and there was still a huge gap you know the rich got the poor got richer but the rich also got richer during this period and so this vast gap between the 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 top the top group and the the and the bottom group both had improved, but the vast gap remained. And I think that's a very key point what you say there, Alex, about the growth of expectations. Because if we look at where we are now in Brazil, where things, you know, are really bad and we're not seeing like, you know, we're really not seeing sort of like coherent protest movements at the moment to change things, which I think is a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the sort of demographics, the sociological sort of indicators of the June twenty thirteen protesters, it wasn't the bottom of society. No, they tended to be. It was middle class in the most broad sense of the term. Educationally, they were like completely over indexing for having higher education relative to the Brazilian average. But, but they a lot of them but, were new, were new, and a lot of them were new universities, Sam yeah. just described. Yeah. Um, but in terms of income and so on, they weren't necessary. They weren't by any means the wealthy. In fact, if one compares no. the June twenty thirteen protests to the pro impeachment protests, which happened over twenty fifteen yeah. and twenty sixteen, the latter were far more well healed yeah. and yeah. elite and white and all the other <clears throat> indicators of class in Brazil uh, than were June twenty thirteen. I think the fascinating thing about June 2013, and, and I mean, for listeners who might not be familiar, or maybe not even that interested about the Brazilian case, but something which applies more broadly is the way in which the eruption of <coughs> social discontent and demands can be channeled in different ways. Um, and what ha- what's happened in, in Brazil subsequent to June 2013 was, as I described, this polarization. So you had the right really taking a lot of the energy of June 2013. Yeah. Over the course of 2014, it became a lot focused on the World Cup. There were a lot of sort of autonomous black bloc movements against that. 
by the time 2015 rolls absorbed around, into the election as well. it became absorbed yeah. into the June 2014 election. Um, when the Workers' Party won that election, when Juma won the 2014 election, um, by a narrower margin, by, by still a substantial one, the right were just infuriated. And they were then able to sort of capture the energy that had emerged in June 2013 and channel that to yeah. a very specific anti-corruption discourse which targeted the Workers' Party yeah. much more at the expense of any other party. And that's what you ended up... And then as the economy... As the economy started falling down, they rode the wave, you know? They rode that wave. And so it's just fascinating how these things can end up. And, and the left then became a bit quiescent because it part of it felt like it had to defend the Workers' Party, uh, whereas other part of it just felt like it couldn't really seize the anti-corruption narrative for its own purposes um, because it was completely dominated by the right. And it was sort of, yeah. it took on this sort of anti, supposedly anti-statist hue that it was a Workers' Party, the National Development Bank, the role that the state was playing in the economy, which was the cause of corruption. Of course, now we know that this wasn't the case, that uh, corruption is a very ecumenical <laughs> factor in Brazil and that it's yeah. completely cross-party. I mean, it's basically used as a weapon. All political parties, at least the, 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 the main ones that have influence, they're all corrupt um, on some, some more than others, but they're all corrupt. And corruption is basically used as a weapon for each of them to accuse each other and for undermine each other. I think it's, it's interesting as well to think think back to 2013 and the fact that, you know, at those protests, you know, they were protests that were started by the left. But as they grew over the space of, of a couple of weeks, steadily larger and larger protests, we started seeing the kind of yeah. different kinds of placards, you know. Yeah. We, Military we, we, intervention. We I was going to all of the, I watched them grow and I watched the placards change, you know. Yeah. And, and it became, it became confused and you saw the And much kind more anti-political, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you, but you saw the seeds of where the kind of you know there was you know there was there was this kind of leftist critique of of you know the the mega event massive kind of massive spending on kind of huge useless infrastructure projects that was starving the public purse essentially and that corruption was kind of like the mechanism through which this happened um, and then of course out of that emerged this kind of right wing narrative that essentially dropped the whole you know allowed the kind of public service part of it to drop which was essentially the heart of the of the left-wing critique and became focused on corruption as the kind of as the problem in itself rather than the means by which the the, the people got kind of uh denied the 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 resources that were that they were entitled to from the yeah. state yeah and yeah. if we and if we double back to the housing question that we were talking about both in the uk and brazil that's something that we would have imagined would have been a real focal point uh of social demands in those protests but instead they turned in a completely different direction yeah it really wasn't i mean it was all very much about like you know uh even from the public service point of view it was very much about like healthcare education which are basically it's that's kind of like the sort of like you know the default phrase that any brazilian politician that wants to get into power whether on the left right the center the moon mars you know any brazilian politician starts off their political campaign with yeah we need to focus on uh education saúde education saúde you know health and education it's just it's 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 really the, the, I mean, and it's also needed, of course, because, you know, Brazil, public health and public education are extremely precarious. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like, it's interesting often seeing the, uh, the sort of the, the calls for, especially during some of the more kind of right wing, you know, anti-workers party protests that I, um, 
that I that I visited, you know, calls for better better public education, calls for better public health, and you know, these are people by and large. They don't you know, use the public. They don't use they the don't public use system. public service. That was an, that was an excuse for talking about about the about corruption and the kind of and the and and the big state that was kind of interfering in yeah in their lives and you know kind of charging making them pay more for their for their domestic you know paying a minimum wage to their domestic workers and that kind of you know it was a it was the the public service angle was a was a was a it was just a vehicle it was a, it was a, it was an excuse it was a it was a red herring but I think it, like George like I mean you're not so familiar with the Brazilian case but in the UK or even just more broadly it's interesting right that public services can often be used as itself as sort of a bit of an empty an empty signifier, a sort of vehicle for for criticizing from the left and the right. I mean, there's this assumption that the left is the party, the left is the the spokesperson for public services against the right, which is in favor of privatization. I mean, and that's the the sort of um, polarization of of the past forty years, at least. And yet, that isn't always the case. That the, the right can also speak in some ways for pri- for public services. That public services are crappy. Yeah, no, I think I think in the in the in the British case, you, I mean, you have a very clear identification uh, that Corbyn, that Jeremy Corbyn, has tried to make between his his Labour Party and um, a defence of public services against privatisation. Um, and I think it's a bit. I think often when the right talks about um, public services in, in the UK, at least, there's there's a focus on ideas of standards or quality or choice, um, which is obviously a bit disingenuous um, because it has, you know, it has meant in the last 20, 25, 30 years, um, it has meant privatisation. So it has meant sort of underfunding, criticising, and then um, and then privatising. <clears throat> and so I don't know how. I think that's that's the kind of the classic neoliberal model of, of, of yeah. approaches to pri- uh, to public services because there's obviously a great deal of potential uh, potential gain in privatizing and then making the run more efficiently or with more or yeah, with I mean, more choice but yeah you're right it's still it's often still wrapped up in some in a basic support often of public services yeah i mean i'd just like to cut in there and say that's a platform that would just like never win anything in brazil you know like there's no no politician has ever run on some kind of like you know neoliberal platform where we're going to like reduce the state we're going to privatize you know the healthcare system we're going to privatize this it would never run in brazil like i say the 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 only thing that unites brazilians these days in brazil pretty much is the wish for better public services and what we have now is a government which is unelected and is pushing through an agenda that would never push by popular vote. So yeah, I mean, I think that an interesting, I mean, maybe to maybe to tie back in a bit again to the the whole housing question is the fact that you know Grenfell represents the kind of the 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 hollowing out of of a welfare system that kind of once kind of existed in the UK and now is it it's kind of you know on its you know. Uh, on its last legs, unless it can be resuscitated somehow. Um, in Brazil, the welfare state is a kind of rudimentary one that has never really kind of existed to a meaningful kind of extent. So the challenge would be to actually kind of build it beyond the kind of very, very kind of, um, uh, I suppose, kind of um, survival level uh, kind of put in place by the Workers' Party, um, you know, 
means tested and, and, and all the rest of it, which still didn't reach, you know, quite a large part of the population. So Brazil's Brazil's really kind of dealing with quite a different kind of um, uh, political context. So the, 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 and even, even on the, I suppose on the right, there's a sense that, you know, there, I think the political consensus, even though, as Sam said earlier, the, 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 the rhetoric doesn't, always you know usually doesn't translate into into action there is still something of a political consensus that there are you know the, the state does need to improve um it what it offers to poor people and there's very few you know politicians don't explicitly come out with a kind of with with a with a neoliberal kind of agenda what they do is they do it you know and by you know kind of by default by talking about um uh, reform of, of kind of pensions and that kind of thing that we're seeing now. So there's a neoliberal agenda going through now, but it's one that doesn't kind of really dare to speak its own name. And I think that's that's maybe um, maybe a bit different from the UK, where where you know there's a, there's a more kind of uh, explicit ideological belief in the in the free market than than really I, you know you'd have to be a bit of an idiot in Brazil to believe that the free market would actually really solve anything. It's, it tends to be like a defense of big landholders' interests and their right to uh, do what they will in the interior of the country, whether it's deforestation or, uh, or, or legal labor practices and that sort of thing. Yeah, George. so I think one thing, one, yeah, I think one thing that ties um, quite a lot of what we've been talking about together to a certain extent is, is, is problems, with, problem with, problems with modern cities. And I remember reading Mike Davis's book, um, planet of slums almost 10 years ago now and him sort of explaining that more than half of humanity now live in in cities and I think that I think Grenfell is, is a you know pretty tragic illustration of some of the the, the problems with um, with urbanization in in Britain and how we haven't been able to 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 put into place any sort of public policy that has um, allowed for any kind of equitable or really good living conditions in in cities so yeah that's that, that that was just my my reflection hearing you guys talk very eloquently and interestingly about Brazilian politics also feel like I learned a lot <laughs> so thanks I think it we're talking about kind of um about heat you know political heat about people on the streets people being angry um and a degree of mobilization and Brazil's felt hot since June 2013 it's felt like constant tumult um after period of 10 you know the decade of crisis of yeah, yeah. and it, it, it's permanent crisis and while things look pretty grim in brazil today there's also a real opportunity i mean my personal opinion is that this republic won't last much longer and in that sense it does provide an opportunity for progressive forces to reshape the country uh and to refound the republic yeah. um but it's very much up to uh, you know that that will be determined by by the state of struggle in brazil okay. and um, in in and, and yet Brazil seems to, and Latin America as a whole, but Brazil specifically seems to exist on a very different timeline um, to the rest of the world. The periodization that we're familiar with maybe in Western Europe and North America of the Cold War period and the post-Cold War period and then whatever period that we're going into now doesn't really fit neatly into Brazil. And yet I think the forces of stabilization seem to be very weak in Brazil and they're not gaining any re reinforcement from the global north because the north is in tumult now and there seems to be opportunities and openings in you know British politics which seem to be the most stable and dull and grey um, that we you know and that make marks a real change 
Um, so I think it's kind of all to play for and, and quite exciting. But I think we're going to have to leave it there yeah. for this week. A huge thanks to Sam Cowie and Matt Richmond for joining us this week. Uh, thanks very much. And we'll be back next week with another scan of kind of world affairs and... The onward march of revolution. And the onward march of revolution. <laughs> or devolution. Or like. <laughs> One of the two. All right. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. See ya. See ya. See ya.